0: Go ahead and open your Bibles with me, if you would, to the book of Acts, chapter 5. And as you do, I'd like to ask you to mark your calendars. Mark your calendars for Sunday, October 16th. Sunday, October 16th. So if at all possible, make plans to be in attendance on October 16th. So on that day, just to kind of let you know what's going to take place, we're going to have an abbreviated service followed by a state of the church address. Now that sounds really formal, didn't really know the way how to phrase it. Um, now, what does that mean, that we're going to have a state of the church address? Well, here we'll consider the, the purpose of why we exist as a church that purpose being to to make disciples of all nations. And we'll also take an honest look at what it will take for us to to be a a faithful gospel presence in this community and around the world, not just today, but for generations to come. So yes, a, a significant portion of our discussion We'll be talking about what it will take for us as a church to obtain a permanent facility. We're going to address this question head on. But the overall thrust of our time together will will be on how can we be more faithful to making disciples of all nations. Giving and going to the ends of the earth with the good news of the gospel like we have never done before. And a permanent facility will be a large part of this. But to get us there, we'll first need to take an honest look at who we are as a church by the numbers. So number of members, yes. The, the health of our giving collectively as a church, yes. Serving, yes. So an honest and straightforward like state of the church followed by an honest look at what it will really take for us to obtain a permanent facility and to be a faithful gospel witness in this community, again, not just today, but for generations to, to come. Like what will that actually take? And then lastly, we'll present what we believe as elders to be the path forward getting there and we'll tell you on the very front end i'll tell you today this will not be an easy path forward so there's no pom-poms and getting up there like hey next week we're gonna get there this is just be an honest path forward this is what it will take but we believe it is doable we believe that it is doable if if We are collectively working together towards this end, meaning it takes all of us. And so October 16th, mark your calendars, make plans now to be in attendance. Now, take that, mark it down, and let's shift our attention, begin shifting our attention towards our text this morning, because all of that Plays very much into why we're going through the Book of Acts. It's not by happenstance. All right, all of it has a purpose. So, as we shift our attention this morning, let me ask you: As it applies to the Christian faith, have you ever heard someone say or infer that following Christ would make your life easier? Ever ever heard that? I grew up hearing that. Or maybe something like, following Christ is the safest place you can be. Heard that one too. Being in the center of God's will is the safest place you can be. Well, by hearing some responses and seeing some heads, that can tell that there's mixed reactions to that. So some of you have heard those things. Some of you haven't heard those things. But if anyone ever told you that faithfully following Christ would be easy, I'm here to tell you this morning that they lied to you. If anyone ever told you that being in the center of God's will is the safest place to be, earthly speaking, they lied to you. No, I'm not saying that they meant to. I'm not saying that they had this evil conniving thing in their mind that they were trying to do, but unintentionally they did because all we have to do is read the scriptures to to see that there's nothing easy nor safe when it comes to following christ which is why jesus tells his followers in luke chapter 14 to count the cost before they even begin the journey he's saying don't start what you don't plan to to finish when things get tough jesus saying if they come after me they're going to come after you you can expect the same. Thus his words in Luke chapter 14, verse 27, long before his his, his crucifixion. And he says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Why does he say that? Because following Christ is costly. Jesus' point being that before we ever step into the baptismal waters, that is Publicly and biblically identifying ourselves as followers of Christ. We're told to weigh the cost. That's what these early Christians had to do. They had to weigh the cost. The cost being that we're not just saved from our sins to avoid the punishment of hell. That's not, that's not what salvation is exclusively. It is that gloriously, but it's not exclusively. No, we enter in, we weigh the cost. It is to faithfully follow christ so that's the question to consider is are we willing to pay the cost for what it will take to faithfully follow christ and then the question naturally becomes but but jeremy what's the cost away what's this actually going to cost how do we know what this full cost is going to be how do we know what we're signing up for and the answer, and one answer is, you don't. We don't. I can't tell you the extent of the cost for you any more than you can tell me what the extent of the cost will be for me. And it's probably, let's just be honest, it's a good thing that we don't know that, right? I mean, just think about how many things in your life, things that if, if you knew the, the full cost at the start, before you ever like, said yes, if you knew the full cost of everything that was going to come your way with that decision, how many things would you be like, I don't know about that. All the tears that you were going to shed and all the pain that you were going to experience, would you say, yeah, I'd do that all over again? I think a lot of us would be like, I don't know if I'd do that again. I got plenty of those things. But at the same time, on on this side of the decision, or those many decisions, consider also the Lord's grace in carrying you through. How he's heard your pleas for mercy. He heard your pleas for grace. And consider all that the Lord has taught you, even though you wouldn't do it again, you're actually glad that you've come through the fire. How he's used such experiences, however painful, to shape you into who you are today. But let's just say, what if faithfully following Christ does cost you absolutely everything? So you hear God's call, as he's extended to every single believer, to make disciples of all nations. And you faithfully do it. You're like, yes, Lord, I am in, I'm doing this, wherever it is, locally or globally, wherever. But you invest years faithfully serving the Lord, proclaiming Christ in your everyday day-to-day. And in the process, you lose your spouse, one of your children your own life as a result, the direct result of your faithfulness, is it worth it? Is, is faithfully following Christ, if it costs you absolutely everything and everyone you love in this world, can you honestly say Christ is worth it all? Because, friends, that's the cost we are to weigh. That is the cost we are called to weigh. While at the same time, never knowing fully what this cost will be. See, since Pentecost, the church in Jerusalem has been growing in number. We've seen this from about 120 at Pentecost to about 3,120 by the end of the day at Pentecost. And has been adding day by day to the number of those who are being saved. And let's not forget, this is just in Jerusalem at this point. Jerusalem is still home base for the apostles. They they haven't yet ventured out into Judea or Samaria or to the ends of the earth. They're just faithfully being Christ's witnesses right there in Jerusalem. And what's beginning to mount upon them? The level of persecution that they're experiencing. The, the, the cost of, of, to faithfully follow Jesus is getting greater and greater and greater and more costly and more costly. Remember how we, we looked just a few weeks back in chapter 4, how Peter and John were, were arrested for preaching Christ, for faithfully teaching Christ? And subsequently, they were threatened by the high priest and the, council, the religious council to do what? Cease and assist, like, stop proclaiming Christ. Don't do this anymore or else. And how did Peter and John and the rest of the church respond in chapter 4? Remember how they prayed for boldness to keep preaching Christ? Just look back briefly with me at chapter 4, verse 29. It will not be on the screen. It'll just be in your Bibles. And they prayed, and now... Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. See, they're praying for the ability to speak Christ boldly, praying for the continued ability to proclaim the gospel boldly and also praying for God To heal and perform signs and wonders. These signs and these wonders, these healings, opening the door for the apostles then to do what? To preach Christ even more boldly. More opportunity to to preach Christ. As people are amazed at these spiritual signs. They're amazed at these wonders. And they're asking the question like we would ask. Like, how is this possible? Like, how does all this work? How? And the apostles are like, huh glad you asked. Let me tell you. And where do they point him? Back to Jesus. And so how does God answer their prayer? We're told in verse 31 of chapter 4 that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with what? With boldness. And what we have within our text today is a visual of this answered prayer. A visual of both signs and wonders and The bold proclaiming of Christ, no matter the cost. So look with me at chapter 5, verse 12. Now, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Pause. We're going to do that a little bit. But pause there, which this is clearly an answer to... Part of their prayer right they prayed for this it being been answered God performing many signs and wonders regularly through the hands of the apostles signs and wonders that clearly again drew the crowds drew the curious it got people talking <laughs> like what is going on in Jerusalem we've got to see this but then continuing into verse 12 and they were all together in Solomon's portico okay now here's the question Who's the they spoken of here? So we essentially have two options of who they are. Think in your mind of who they could be. Well, they could be the apostles, right? Or it could be they as the church as a whole. I tend to believe it is the gathered church, as they were all together in Solomon's portico. And a little thing about Solomon's portico. was a platform on the perimeter of the outer court of the temple that was surrounded by these beautiful tall colonnades, probably like 45 feet in height, these colonnades serving as to to hold up the the roof or the covering over top of them, open air, but holding up this covering. And we're talking like 300 yards in length, so a, a very large covered section protecting the them from the elements and protecting them from the sun and all of that a perfect place for the church in jerusalem to gather as one very large gathering space but now notice verse 13 none of the rest dared join them but the people held them in high esteem which gives us another question who are the rest who do not dare to join them and why Well, I believe the rest is in reference to the non-believers, so those who aren't committed to faithfully following Christ. But look at this. Even though they don't believe and aren't committed to faithfully following Christ, we're told they have great respect for the Christians who are gathering, holding them in high esteem, meaning there's something about the church's faithfulness and how they're living as a church, that earns esteem even from non-believers, which is something to consider, is it not? How how we are living our lives individually and corporately as as a church, is it causing even non-believers to look upon us with high esteem, a curiosity, a respect, or are we just blending into the world? But nonetheless, these non-believers are like, yeah, y'all go ahead and gather. Y'all go ahead and do that. We, we, we have high esteem for what you're doing, who you are. We'll stay over here. And the obvious question there is why? Why not come a little bit closer? Why not gather with the, with the church? Two possible reasons sticking out. One being what had just happened to Ananias and Sapphira. Pretty good reason. Like everybody's heard about it at this point. Like, this has happened. They know what has happened, and they're rightfully, what? Fearful. <laughs> yeah. Maybe weighing the cost of holiness and being like, yeah. I'm just not willing to do that yet. So I'll hang out over here and be safe. I'll watch from afar. Not coming that close. So not joining the church because they're not willing to be holy as God himself is holy meaning they seem to have at least some understanding that half-hearted hypocritical worship has no place among God's people, even as non-believers, a truth that remains just as true today. But now another reason they they may have kept their distance from the gathered church is because of the the persecution that was beginning to and continuing to mount upon the church. So not willing to, to gather publicly and associate themselves with Christ and his church out of their own fears of what might happen to them if they do. Like this wasn't just some, like they come to a nice friendly setting and get baptized. No, to be baptized into the church was to say, commit treason against Caesar. Like I'm no God, but God. <laughs> to gather with the church and say, I'm among this people. They're not willing to associate themselves with Christ and his church. They're not fearful of God. They're fearful of people. So they weigh the cost and they're like, nope, I'll keep my distance. But then what we told in verse 14, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on the cots and mats. That as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So much here that we just don't have the time to dive into and discuss fully. But yeah, there are those who are keeping their distance. We've seen that. But there are also what? More and more people. The text telling us more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Meaning, despite all of the persecution they were experiencing, the church was continuing to grow. More than ever, people were committing to follow Christ no matter the cost. That cost very well could have been their life. And how do you think the continued growth of the church goes over with the high priest and the religious leaders who had threatened Peter and John to stop this or else? How do you think that they're handling this growing number of believers? Verse 17. But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. So the first arrest back in chapter four only included Peter and John. And they were told, stop preaching Christ or else. But here it's not just Peter and John who have been arrested, but all of the apostles. The religious leaders growing jealousy, likely because of the growing following that is taking place. And and so they arrest them and put them in this public prison trying to shame them, trying to silence their their witness, not only of them, but of their followers. But verse 19, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out (laughs) and said go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach, to proclaim the gospel. I I love this on so many levels. But listen to this, continuing in verse 21. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, They called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, They were greatly perplexed by them, wondering what this would come to. So can you imagine the look on their faces in this moment? Like the fear the guards must have had of appearing to have let them escape. Like, I didn't do, I don't know, like what? I don't know what happened. (laughs) But they're the ones who are going to get blamed. And then verse 25. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Just so much fear being mentioned on so many levels. Verse 27, And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned him, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. This man's blood referring to who? To Jesus. It's referring to Jesus. So, so think about this. The same religious leaders who, who, had, who had Jesus killed are like, why are you blaming us for Jesus' death? Uh, Because you're guilty. And they're also saying, stop preaching and teaching in his name or else. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. And friends, that's boldness. That's boldness. And you know what that also is? That's fear. That's fearing God more than man. And that's having weighed the cost well before they were ever in this position. So regardless of what power these people may have, obedience to God is paramount. But they don't just stop there. Standing before the same people who had Jesus crucified, they boldly say, verse 30, the God of our fathers, that is the God of Abraham and Isaac and of Jacob, the God we all, including these religious leaders and the apostles, all of us claim to believe in and be children of, he raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. You killed him, but God raised him. Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, which includes the religious leaders. Meaning the apostles are inviting the religious leaders who are threatening them to do what? What? to repent and believe, to come to Jesus and to be forgiven, which is clearly bold. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, how do you think the religious leaders responded to all this? Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. So like they're done. Like they've reached the end. Like they're ready to stone them, they're ready to crucify them, whatever it takes. Just kill these men and let's be done with it. But verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gemaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. Meaning, this man had enough clout and enough respect to silence a room of angry men who were ready to kill the apostles. So you're talking about somebody who can stand up and be like, and get everybody else's attention. They respect this man. And he has the apostles taken outside, like, okay, we're going to talk among us. You all go outside. And he said to them, men of Israel, verse 35, take care What you are about to do with these men. For before before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished. And all who followed him were scattered. So each of these men appeared to have attempted to have led some sort of revolt, some sort of coup, appeared to have gathered some following along the way, but eventually were killed. And after their death, what happened? Their followers scattered. Costs too high. So here's Gamaliel, a teacher of the law honored and respected by the people. And he's thinking, maybe with Ananias and Sapphira in mind, but he's thinking, we've already killed Jesus, the one that these people claim to follow, the one that they're preaching in the name of. We've already killed him. And they haven't scattered yet. At least not yet. In fact, their numbers are actually continuing to grow despite Jesus' death. So verse 38. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, he beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And the apostles left quietly never to speak the name of Jesus again, right? Wrong. you paid attention. Verse 41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Oh, how I love these last two verses. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Meaning they were bound and determined to obey God rather than men. And they were bound to do so no matter the cost. Just such a beautiful and powerful reminder that while opposition will come with a continual and faithful proclamation of the gospel, you know what will also come? Fruit. Fruit. People believing the gospel. People entering into baptismal waters and committing to, to follow Christ no matter the cost. And so what I want to do with our remaining time together is is look at five fairly brief takeaways from this text. Could certainly pull out more, but we're going to look at five. Starting with number one, faithfully following Christ requires us to fear God more than man. Just consider the various examples of fear we see in our text starting with verse 13, and how none of the rest dared to join them. (laughs) Non-believers, unwilling to gather with the church publicly for worship, maybe out of a fear what would happen to them, them, uh, what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, or maybe out of a fear of being associated as followers of Christ because of the rising levels of persecution. Either way, they did not possess a genuine fear of God that outweighed their fear of man. We're willing to take up... We're not willing to take up the cross and to follow him. But they're not alone. The high priest and the other religious leaders are are fearful as well. Fearful of who? They're fearful of the people. Of course, they're jealous of the people, but they're also fearful. Because it was their job as the leaders to keep the peace. Rome being like, you got one job. Keep the peace. And if they don't, they're going to lose control. They're going to lose power. And that's what they fear. They fear an uprising that gets out of control and takes away their power. Which is why they're, they're doing everything in their power to squelch this threat and bring persecution. But for a people who claim to be teachers of the law of God, children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they show little to no fear of God, only of man. Which, of course, brings us to the apostles answering the religious leaders' threats with, we must obey God rather than men. See, they've, they've waived the cost of following Christ and, and realized there is no option. There's no other option, which leads them to what? To boldly proclaim the gospel before the religious leaders who could kill them which should cause us to to marvel. Because remember, just months prior, Peter had denied Jesus three different times. But now he's standing up and boldly proclaiming the gospel. Why? How? One, because God raised Jesus from the dead. And they believe it. They believe it. And two, because of the Spirit's ongoing work in their lives since Pentecost. So, yes, the religious leaders have the power to kill them. They kill Jesus. But you know what these religious leaders did not have the power to do? They did not have the power to keep Jesus dead. They could not keep Jesus dead. Already been proven. And so the apostles are like, I'm siding with the one who raises the dead. <laughs> I'm siding with him. We're living with a hope that no matter what happens to us on this earth, God promises that we who are united with him in Christ will rise as Christ has risen. We're with that guy. We're with him. Following his marching orders. In church, that's fear. Or that's healthy fear a fear radiating from love and devotion and belief that God is who he says he is and will do what he promises to do. Thus the church, verse 12, were all together in Solomon's portico publicly gathering to worship Christ, to be identified as his followers, no matter the cost, because they feared God over men. A reminder, we can't be covert Christians and faithfully follow Christ. No place for blending into society in the Christian life. So I ask you this morning, who do you fear more, God or man? Two, faithfully following Christ requires obedience. So as each of these new believers came to faith, they, they were baptized as, as a means of visibly identifying themselves with the church. They, they, this started at Pentecost and continued with every believer thereafter and their baptism signifying a, an allegiance to Christ above all, signifying publicly that these are members of God's family. We are God's family gathering together publicly as baptized believers to worship him and to make his name known. So people know who we are, but then the apostles are arrested, all of them. And, of course, what happens? <laughs> Angel of the Lord opened the prison doors, brought him out, and he said, Go, sound familiar? Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, this gospel, this good news. So, yeah, you've just been arrested. Religious leaders are already upset. (laughs) Enough to arrest you. Let's make them even more upset. How about it? That's the call. Let's raise the cost even higher here. Go into the temple and speak the gospel to the people even more boldly. And what do the apostles do? Go get this. They do it. Like, they don't sit back and take a risk assessment test. <laughs> I don't know. They're told to go, and what do they do? They go. They preach Christ. And, of course, they're found. And they're brought back in. They're threatened even further. And they're like, we must obey God rather than men. Religious, religious leaders, well, I just want to kill them. Gamaliel calms down the situation. Finally, they're let go. And what do they do? Verse 42, every day in the temple and from house to house, they do not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. They don't stop. Why? Because God told them to go. (laughs) Just as he's told each of us who have identified ourselves as Christ's followers through baptism that we are to go. We who have received the same power of the Holy Spirit, we are to go under the authority of Christ and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe or obey everything Christ has commanded you. Church, there's no way around it. God's word here, his instructions to us, is not an option to be considered. It is a command to be obeyed. Again, bringing us back to the question who do we fear more, God or men? Number three, faithfully following Christ is costly. There is nothing safe in this world about faithfully following Christ. Faithfully proclaim the gospel faithfully call people to repent and believe, make no mistake about it, it will cost you. I'm not saying our cost will be the same as that of what the apostles experienced. Even their costs were were different as we will see from one to another. But they all paid a price. Even those whose names we'll never know paid a great price on this earth for faithfully following Christ because the only way to avoid persecution as a Christian is to not faithfully follow Christ. To not publicly identify ourselves as one with him with Christ in his church. To not call people to repent and to believe. Avoid these things and you'll never face persecution for faithfully following Christ. But if this is the case, neither can you have any confidence that you are a faithful follower of Christ. Because while obedience does not save us, let us be clear, it does not save us, it does provide the evidence of our salvation. It reveals who we fear most. In church, by the trajectory of our own culture, I believe it is very safe to say it will never be easier to faithfully follow Christ than it is right now. It will likely only get more and more difficult and more and more costly. Thus, the call to weigh the cost now. But again, that's the question, isn't it? How do we do that? How do we weigh the cost when we don't know what it's going to cost us? Like, I'm not going to buy a house or anything for that matter unless I know the cost. Like, what is the -the out-the-door cost? I'm evaluating. Like, I want to know, what is this down to the penny going to cost me? Am I willing to pay the price? But with following Christ, how do we know the cost? (laughs) By assuming from the very beginning, from the time we enter the baptismal waters, that it will cost us absolutely everything. And ask, is Jesus worth it? Because that's the parable of the treasure in the field. Man finds a treasure in the field. And he goes and sells everything he has to buy the field. Why? Is it because it's such a great field? Like, I just got to have the land? No. It's because he wants the treasure in the field. He wants the treasure. The treasure being more infinitely valuable than everything he owns and then some. So he sells everything he has to obtain the treasure. And church, the point of the parable is that Christ is the Christian's greatest treasure. And so to weigh the cost of following him is to realize that even if we lose everything, as painful as that would be, and I'm not saying we want that to happen, but if we lost everything, guess what? We still get Christ. We get Christ, our greatest of all treasures. We get Christ. So let me ask you, is Christ your greatest treasure? When you begin to examine the depths of your own heart, is Christ your greatest treasure? Oh, so thankful for God's grace. Thankful for the reminder that I have so many things to repent of. Continue to seek Him not by my efforts, but the Spirit that is within me, His grace. Number four, faithfully following Christ requires perseverance. Amen? Just think about all the obstacles standing in the way of this early church. Threats to silence the gospel. Persecution making it harder to function within the social norms of society. They were given every earthly reason to no longer walk this road. Just turn and your financial situation will get better. Don't do this and it'll be better for you. But yet they continue to persevere even through their suffering. See, I smile when I consider the Lord sending an angel to let them out of prison. They get arrested for continuing to preach Christ. Locked up. An angel comes along and lets them out and tells them what? Keep preaching Christ in the temple. And they do what? keep preaching Christ in the temple. Why? Because they're beginning to understand what we need to understand. God's plans cannot be thwarted. They lock them up. Oh, we've got them locked in prison. God's going to let them out. But even if they stayed, what were they going to do? Preach Christ in prison. This thing is rigged. Like it cannot be stopped. Now, we might not always like where God's plan takes us or what it entails, been there. (laughs) But there is no event or circumstance in our life that has happened or that will happen that surprises God. Not a one. Not one event or circumstance that has the ability to derail God's plans, no matter how painful it is. Which means what for us? That we must persevere in faithful obedience. No matter the cost, realizing that our perseverance in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our grief, in the midst of our tears, can be when our light shines the brightest. And people are like, How is that possible? Well, let me tell you. And number five, faithfully following Christ brings rejoicing in Christ. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. They've been arrested, have just been beaten, and once again been threatened to not speak the name of Christ anymore. And here they are, walking out, beaten, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. So I see them, and I picture them walking out singing. It's how I picture it. I see them walking out singing, Victory in Jesus. And yeah, I know that song had not been written yet. This is how I picture it. Smiles on their faces, blood on their bodies, lashes evident, but singing, Victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. He loved the air, I knew him. And all my love is due him. He plunged me to victory beneath the cleansing flood. The flood of his grace. The flood of his mercy. See, church, that's the key. We don't rejoice in suffering out of some martyrdom complex. Suffering isn't something that we go and we seek out. But we rejoice in our suffering because through the crucified and resurrected Christ, we've already obtained the victory in Jesus. Therefore, let us rejoice in Christ, our great treasure, and remain faithful to his commands. Because church, I promise you, it's worth the cost. He's worth Oh Lord, there's so many things vying for our attention. So many things in this life that can bring about fear. And each and every one of us are naturally bent towards a fear of men. We care about what others think about us, we wonder how we're going to be received. But Lord, help us to see the bigger picture. Help us to see who you are. Who you are as a holy, holy, holy God. And yet, despite of our sin, despite of the judgment we deserve, we who are your children have been saved exclusively by your grace, redeemed by Christ's blood. We are co-heirs with Christ. And that blows my mind. Death cannot contain us because death could not hold Christ. So Lord, help us to fear you more than men. Help us to be obedient to your commands. Help us to weigh the cost each and every day and continue to persevere in the faith, rejoicing in Christ as we do. For your glory.